Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the PM366 Basic Christian Doctrine Podcast. I have to say, I'm a little disappointed that nobody has sent me any music for my apocalyptic playlist, so hopefully that doesn't mean you're not listening, but rather that you feel you have more important things to do with your time than get me up to speed on the newest trends in music. So instead of listening to your recommendations this week, I've been spending some time listening to Empire of the Sun, which has still been pretty enjoyable, but again, doesn't quite fit the mood of where we're at as the world right now. Anyway, enough about music. Today we're going to be working through Lesson 3.5 on Sanctification in Christ, plus I'll be covering a little bit of content on Preservation and Glorification, two doctrines that unfortunately we've had to cut the bulk of due to our extended spring break and my week of illness. So, I'd like to start by reading an excerpt from a passage in your textbook, One with Christ, by Marcus Peter Johnson. Now, normally there would have been several points in the class so far where we would have stopped and dialogued some with the Johnson textbook, but one side effect of transitioning to online is I'm giving you 20 to 25 minute podcasts instead of an hour and 15 minutes in class. I am trying to make up some of that time by giving you Zoom opportunities and discussion forums and review quizzes and things of that sort to engage your participation. So if you've not been engaging there, please make sure you do so in order to earn the points that you need for that participation component. Today, however, I think uh, we have one of the more important uh, discussions that I normally have in the Johnson book, and it begins on page 167. So if you'd like to jot a little note down, you can go back and reread this yourself later on. But Johnson begins on page 160, sorry, 169, uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, with these words. He says, we are accustomed and even conditioned to think of salvation in the past tense. This is reflected in the language we use to describe our salvation. I have been saved. And in the queries we direct to others. When were you saved? This use of the past tense indicates the way we conceive of salvation, for it reveals something we feel is basic to the good news of our salvation in Christ, that he has fully and objectively accomplished our salvation in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and that we have been made beneficiaries of his finished work through faith. We rightly insist, therefore, that salvation is not the product of a lifetime of moral achievement or the effect of years of gradual religious ascendancy. One of the wonderful aspects of the gospel is that it tells us we have already been united to Christ. And yet, on page 170, moving to the next paragraph, this chapter, however, is about how salvation ought to be expressed in the present and future tenses as well. Our salvation in Christ is so comprehensive that, in addition to speaking of having been saved, we have biblical warrant to speak of the fact that we are being saved and will be saved in Christ. The present and future tenses of salvation are also integral to the gospel. There has been a tendency in evangelical theology to so stress the importance of the finished work of Christ that we lose sight of the ongoing work of Christ through which he is saving us, and the yet-to-be-completed work of Christ, through which he will save us. So that's a very long quote from Johnson, and I usually use it to spark a conversation in the class, where I would ask you, 
When you think about salvation, either in terms of your own salvation or in terms of what Christians mean when they speak of salvation, do you think of it as something in the past, something ongoing in the present, or something we're waiting for in the future? And I've found many students tend to think of it as a past event. It's certainly true that a component of salvation is in the past, but it is also the case that there is much more to salvation than this, which is why Paul can speak, for example, in the future tense, you will be raised with Christ, and in the past tense, you have been raised with Christ. He can speak in the present tense, we are being saved, and in the future tense, we will be saved. I've told you that the doctrine of the Ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation, which concerns how the benefits of atonement are applied to our lives as Christians, I've told you that this is based in the doctrine of union, and that theologians will distinguish between various aspects of union, and I lectured on nine of them. They will distinguish between these in order to come up with distinct terms that better help us make sense of union. We've already discussed the doctrine of justification. Justification refers to the past tense dimensions of union. And there are a few additional terms that do so as well that we won't cover in an intro class. Today, we will focus on sanctification, which refers to the present tense aspect of union, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in order to join us to Christ's human nature, that we may become more holy, just as he was holy. It's also possible to speak of the future aspect of union, which is that of glorification. You may remember that among the nine aspects of union in Paul that I lectured on last week, one of them was eschatology, which refers to the end times. In other words, our union with Christ will not be complete until the end of history. If that is the case, that future complete union is known as glorification. And then there's one final aspect of union that is actually quite debated, and that is preservation. Preservation refers to God's work in the faithful to ensure that they move from a current state of ongoing salvation and actually and definitively reach a final state of glorification. Now I should note that the doctrine of preservation is heavily debated. There are some Christians who believe that once you are saved, God will preserve you so that you will be fully saved in the end. There are other Christians who deny this and who believe that it is possible to lose your salvation. Now, there are a number of reasons for this debate on preservation. One of them is scriptural. There are some passages where the Holy Spirit is described as a seal or a down payment. In the ancient world, a wax seal would be placed on a letter or other communication with a, uh, an imprint that only the owner would possess to ensure that no one opened with or tampered the letter until it arrived at its final destination. Language like this, where the Spirit is our seal, the seal of God imprinted on us, suggests that the Spirit works in us to ensure that we reach our final destination 
and will ultimately be saved in the end if we currently believe now. There's also scriptural language, though. Here, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is one of the bigger passages that suggests that perhaps salvation can be lost if you deny Christ in certain ways. Two other factors come into play here, one of them being personal experience. Perhaps you know someone who has turned away from the faith. Did they really lose their salvation? Will God one day bring them back? Were they never saved at all? It's something hard to tell at times, and Christians debate personal examples and try and fit it in with the question of preservation. Finally, there's the question of how preservation fits with other doctrines of the Christian faith. In particular, we see debates between Calvinists and Arminians here. Recall that Calvinists say that monergism explains how we convert. Monergism was the idea that there is only one who acts in our conversion, and that is God. If God's the only one acting at the beginning, and God does not change, then presumably God will continue acting until we reach a state of salvation in the end. Arminians, on the other hand, say that not only does God act, but we are given a choice to accept or reject the grace that he has offered us. Based on this theological position, Arminians raise the question whether it might be possible for Christians at a later state in their faith to reject the gift of salvation that they had once accepted. So that's the doctrine of preservation in a nutshell, five minutes instead of a an entire class on it. I wanted to introduce you to that doctrine, but today, as I said, the bulk of our discussion will be on the doctrine of sanctification, which we will be following along uh, in your sanctification PowerPoint. Sanctification, if we were to define it, can be described as the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, by which our union with Christ is increasingly manifest in freedom from sin's pollution, restoration to the image of God, and renewal unto good works. In other words, sanctification cleanses us from the stain of sin, which is something we will be talking about in the lecture next week. But were it not for my sickness, we would have covered before the midterm. Sanctification cleanses us from sin. Sanctification restores the image of God in us, which has been distorted, an effect of sin. And finally, sanctification enables us to do good works. From a Protestant perspective, not so that we may be saved by them, but so that we may do them for God's glory. You see, our nature, when corrupted by sin, naturally inclines to do evil things. So, when that sin begins to be purified from our nature, we are thereby able to do good works. Again, that is sanctification in a nutshell, and it is typically associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of times, students in my class get confused on the difference between the doctrines of sanctification and justification. So I have a slide, slide seven here, that breaks down some simple differences there. Now, I should note here that today's lecture is a result of my having to choose between some fairly heavy disagreements among Christians. The language of sanctification and the distinction between sanctification and justification is a particularly Protestant distinction. In other words, if you're Methodist or Baptist 
or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or non-denominational, then this sort of terminology would fit in your church setting. However, if you are Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Coptic Orthodox, these are not the terms that you would use to describe the order of salvation. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, when it speaks of justification, tends to combine what Protestants call justification and sanctification into a single category. So having noted that, you should recognize that slide 7 describes a distinction that Protestants would accept. So if I asked you on a test what Protestants mean by sanctification or what the term means, this is something to help you answer and understand. Okay, so what is justification? As we discussed in the last lecture, justification refers to a change in status that we receive before God. Protestants say a new status is imputed to us. We are called righteous, even though our own nature is not necessarily actually righteous. And again, the Roman Catholic Church disagrees and says that righteousness is infused to us so that our nature is actually changed. If all you knew about Protestant theology was the doctrine of justification, this might lead you to believe that Protestants don't think Christians ever actually become holy. But that's why they add a separate stage of sanctification. Sanctification refers to an actual change in our nature, in what we are. It is a true and genuine change in our character, including a change in our motivations, our natural impulse, and our understanding of the good. So justification changes our status in the past. Sanctification changes our character in the present. Justification is therefore only positional, by which I mean you either have the position of being justified or you don't. You have the status or you do not. There is no degree of justification that varies among Christians, according to Protestants. If one of you were a brand new Christian, let's say Tian, and if another of you, Pico, has been a Christian for 30 years, and I know that's not true, you're not even 30, but if that was the case, you would both be equally justified. Sanctification, on the other hand, does vary in degree. It is progressive and not just positional. The longer you are a Christian, the more you should be sanctified. So it's possible to point to some Christians and say they are more sanctified or more holy than other Christians. Now, the amount of sanctification that happens will vary from person to person, and how holy you become will partly depend on how holy you were when you started your journey as a Christian. So it's not necessarily the case that somebody who's been a Christian for 10 years will be further along than someone who has only been a Christian for a year. However, that tends to be the case, Protestants believe, and at the very least we should say that after 10 years of being a Christian, you should have become more holy through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, or else something is wrong. One final distinction, justification, according to Protestants, is something like a forensic or legal declaration. Those terms should bring to mind a courtroom. So you can imagine justification is essentially you standing before the judge, God, and he declares you innocent. Sanctification, on the other hand, refers to an actual transforming work. It tends to be described in the Bible with imagery of being washed or being 
uh, reborn or rejuvenated or something like that. So sanctification is the ongoing, current, progressive change in our character that allows us to be transformed. It varies in degree among Christians, and uh, it is an ongoing process. Sanctification relates to some of those models of the atonement that I talked about two weeks ago. So remember, justification connects with the satisfaction theory of the atonement. Satisfaction theory was that we had a debt that we could not repay, but Christ paid the penalty on our behalf so that our debt could be forgiven. That's what justification is. God looks at us and says, your account is square with me. Sanctification is more clearly related to the other models of atonement. In sanctification, the Holy Spirit transforms our sin nature so that we are no longer captive to sin. That relates to the Christus Victor model of the atonement, where Christ had victory over sin, never sinning in his entire life. Therefore, a benefit to us is that we can be freed from the captivity to sin. Another model of the atonement uh, is that of the moral exemplar. We don't know right from wrong, and therefore, Jesus comes to show us right from wrong. In sanctification, the Holy Spirit guides us to knowledge of the truth made manifest in Christ. The Spirit within us helps us to know right from wrong. It helps us to recognize Jesus as our moral example and as the Messiah. Third and finally, we talked about penal substitutionary atonement, or penal substitution. On this model, you are going to be punished for your sins, but Jesus bore the punishment in our place. So now we no longer have to fear punishment. Well, it might be the case that if you don't have an internal motivation to do the good, that punishment will still compel you to be good. There are a number of good things that I've done that I wouldn't normally do. So many of you may have experienced you're driving down the highway, you look up, Suddenly you realize there's a, a police car nearby driving along with you and you slow down a little bit. You don't actually care about driving very close to the speed limit, but you slow down because you're worried about that ticket. A similar thing may happen with the law. If we know God condemns us for breaking the law, then we might be compelled to try and be good. Once that punishment is taken away, a risk might be that we now feel free to go and do evil things. Sanctification protects against that because the Holy Spirit becomes our internal and persuasive moral guide that replaces the law as an external and punitive guide. In other words, we no longer do the good because we're afraid of being punished. We do the good because we want to do the good. Now on slides 8, 9, and 10, I provide some scriptural examples of these themes connecting with the atonement models uh, we discussed in previous classes. Similar scriptural support is also found throughout Johnson. I'm sorry, I'm having to cut that a bit for time purposes. I want to note one debate and one practical application for the doctrine of sanctification and will be done. The debate is a debate concerning what's known as perfectionism. So if sanctification is an ongoing process that makes us more holy, we can ask the question of whether we can ever reach a state of perfection in this life where we do not sin. Most Protestants say that you cannot possibly reach that state. An exception, however, is certain groups of Christians who are descended from the Wesleyan Church or the Methodist Church. 
and sometimes these groups are known as second blessing Wesleyans. They would accept the doctrine of perfectionism, which says that some people can get so far down the road to perfection that they actually avoid any intentional sins. Uh, similar patterns are sometimes seen among Pentecostals, who believe that the Holy Spirit can dramatically fill a person in a way that they will avoid all sin. But that is a minority position among Protestant Christians. Something that Protestant Christians generally agree, about, agree upon, in theory, is that sanctification also is a byproduct of the solas. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. So if you want to ask me how is it that I'm sanctified, I might be tempted to say, oh, I need to go and work really hard on making myself a better person. I need to do a certain list of spiritual disciplines. I need to read my Bible a certain amount. I need to pray a certain number of times. And then I become more holy. And it is true that reading the Bible can help me to become more holy. But Protestants have traditionally argued that that is not because of effort that I put into reading the Bible, but because of God's grace in revealing himself to us through the Bible. Sola Gratia says that every stage of salvation, not just justification, is a byproduct of God's grace. It says, Sola Fide says that all that is needed for salvation is faith. And from a Protestant perspective, that faith is an instrument that connects me to Christ. From a Protestant perspective, then, sanctification involves the Holy Spirit working within me to strengthen my faith so that my union with Christ's humanity grows ever stronger. And the effect of that is that my human nature becomes more like Jesus's nature. Now, the good news here especially for those of us who are Protestant and think this way, is this takes a lot of pressure off in our spiritual lives. Sometimes Protestants find themselves saying, I didn't do anything to earn my salvation, but then they live the rest of their Christian life distressed and feeling pressure that they have to work hard to live up to a certain standard so that they can be sanctified. But historically, Protestants would argue if you want to grow in holiness— don't depend on your own ability or your own effort or your own merit. Simply pray to Christ, grow in your faith with him as enabled by the Holy Spirit, and let him do the work. So that's the doctrine of sanctification, and that's part of the good news of the gospel in Protestant perspective. I hope it encourages you this week as you're considering how to maintain holy attitudes amidst what I'm sure can sometimes be a stressful environment. I know sometimes for me it's a bit harder to get work done with kids in the next room throwing a tantrum, for example, or when they're doing something fun like playing outside that I'd rather be do than in here recording podcasts. But by God's grace, my faith is strengthened and Christ's holiness becomes mine. So I thank him for that and I hope you share the same experiences. Until next time, be well.